Why would they die for a lie? Why would they undergo the afflictions and torture that they, they went through all their lives because they were apostles preaching the glorious message of a resurrected Christ? Why would they do it if they knew it was all a lie? I'd like to ask you to open your Bible, please, to the Gospel of Matthew and uh, leave it open. We're going to be looking at some different verses. But I want to speak with you today about what you need to know about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you could open your Bible to Matthew 16, we'll be uh, starting there. Did you know that approximately 25% of the world's population is under communism? Uh, either, either a country that claims to be communist or a country that, for all intents and purposes, re closely represents communism. And what I'm pointing out is that the beliefs of communism reject conservative belief in God. Atheism has made incredibly huge advances and increases over the last 20 years. According to Wikipedia, China claims to be 91% atheist, making it the most atheistic country in the world today. Japan is at 87%. Sweden, 78% atheist. The United Kingdom, which really not all that long ago, was the powerhouse of Christian, Christianity in the world, sending out missionaries worldwide. The UK today is now 73% atheist. In the USA and Canada, belief in Christianity is at an all-time low. Canada claims to be 63% atheist. And so the point is that billions of people today reject a belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm getting at. It's not just a few here and there. It's billions, folks. And why is it? Why is that? Well, some people want nothing to do with God. They just reject God completely, and the resurrection is a very important part of God. Other people reject anything that departs from the the normal, the natural, at least in their mind, anything that they would consider above normal natural laws of life. And, of course, the resurrection is a miracle. In this passage that we just read in Matthew 16, the next verse, verse 22, the Apostle Peter, this is after Jesus started telling them he was going to Jerusalem, he was going to suffer many things, be killed, Raised again the third day, Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Now Peter thought he was doing something good. So, oh, no, 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 we're not going to let you die, don't worry. But he, he didn't realize Peter had no idea the severity, the gravity, the seriousness of Christ's work on the cross. He didn't fully understand that, and so he spoke without thinking which is something that a lot of us do. But look at his words in the end of verse 22. This shall not be unto thee. In the words of a lot of people, billions of people today, 
in reference to the resurrection, they wouldn't say, this shall not be unto thee. They would say, this cannot be unto thee. It's impossible because they reject anything that in their mind is not normal, natural. Now, this is not something brand new. In fact, back in the 1850s, there were men who started teaching liberal theology in which they rejected the miraculous. They denied anything miraculous, and that includes the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their teachings literally spread around the world. Now, we're talking back in 1850. They didn't have internet. Instant global communications was unheard of. Yet their teachings of liberal theology, denying all of the miracles, went worldwide. And like a virus, it affected churches, Bible colleges, entire denominations began embracing liberal theology. Both Catholic and Protestant groups began denying anything miraculous in the Bible. And of course, that included the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By the 1900s, things got bad, so bad, that there were huge debates across Western civilization as to whether the miracles of the Bible were true or false. And finally, in the 1920s, a large group of conservative Christians who believed the Bible, they got together and they figured out what were basically the five important beliefs of the Christian faith. And I'm going to share those with you right now. They all begin with the letter V. Number one, you can put this up, verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. And I will explain this. Verbal means word by word. It's not thought by thought. It's word by word. God gave us the words. Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Verbal. The Bible that you have is verbal. Secondly, plenary, which means full. It means there's no more parts to be added. It means that God is not still adding to the Bible today. It's The canon of Scripture is closed. It's done. You have it. God has given us a verbal, plenary Bible, but we say inspiration because the word means breathed out. God breathed out the word. God is the author of the Bible. People all over the world deny that and they say, no, man wrote the Bible and blah, blah, blah. They don't know what they're talking about. One of the foundational beliefs of the Christian faith is a belief in the Bible. Verbal, plenary inspiration of the Bible. Now the second V is another miracle and it's the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. That's a miracle. Virgins don't go around giving birth to babies, do they? One did. Her name was Mary. She gave birth to the Son of God. It's a cardinal, foundational, basic belief in the Christian faith. The third V is the vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ. Vicarious means in place of. He went there in place of someone else. Do you know who he went there in place of? Can you tell me? Us. Vicarious atonement. The word atonement 
literally means at one meant. The idea is to reconcile us back to God. Sin had separated us. But, now I know I'm sounding like a theology Bible class here, but there is a little bit of theology every Christian needs to know. And these are very key important words. The vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ. He didn't go to the cross because he had nothing else to do. He went there to do his greatest work. And on the cross, he provided a way for all mankind to be reconciled back to God. The fourth V is the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. Up from the grave he arose. You can't keep God in the grave. If he wants to rise, he's going to rise. And he did. 2,000 years ago, on a Sunday morning, he rose. Hallelujah. And number five is the visible return of Jesus Christ. He's promised to come back. Several times in the scriptures we have that. Now there's more to Christian theology than just those five, but back in the 20s when the debates were raging and it was incredible. I mean, we didn't live back then, so we, we can't really fully appreciate. We just get it from books. Historians are writing and telling us that there was tidal waves, so to speak, happening because of all of the debate. Liberalism had done this. And so they brought in these five fundamentals of the faith. Now, these five beliefs were considered absolute basic, or in other words, fundamental to the Christian faith. And soon these five beliefs became known as the five fundamentals of the faith. That's what they became known as. Christians who claimed to believe in these five fundamentals became known as fundamentalists because they believed in these five fundamentals. Now I know the word fundamentalist has been horribly abused in the last 20 years and it's been made to you know, associate with things that we would just you know, be aghast. But the word means basic. That's all the word means. The five fundamentals of the faith. Our church is a fundamental church because we hold to the five fundamentals of the Christian faith. And so remember the word fundamental just means basic. That's all it means. But the bottom line is that conservative Bible believers they all believe in the miraculous power of God as we find it in the Bible. And this includes a belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And folks, there are three things that you need to know about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And with that, let's pray, and I'm going to share them with you right now. Our Heavenly Father, we ask for special blessing. Please anoint our hearts, our minds, the eyes of our understanding that we can see clearly today. Help us to realize that this is no ordinary book of truth. This is a book sent from heaven, inspired, breathed of God. It's verbal, it's plenary. It has your breath on it, dear God. Help us to believe its truths. Help us to have receptive hearts today. And again, we pray if there be one here in the auditorium or watching online who has not yet understood that they need to repent of sin and receive a savior help them to see that today in jesus name we ask it amen all right if you're a note taker i've got some notes for you note number one remember three things you need to know about the resurrection of jesus christ number one you need to know the fables the fables of the resurrection 
Now, since the Garden of Eden, the devil has always tried to deny whatever God says. In the garden, God told Adam and Eve that they were not to eat of a certain tree. And then God went and said these words, For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Along comes the devil into the garden of Eden. And he said, Thou shalt not die. You see how the devil tries to deny what God says is true. And it's a classic pattern that he's been doing ever since. And so the devil tries to convince people today that the resurrection is just a silly fable. That it's not true. And again, the devil uses liberal theologians to deny the miraculous. Who are these liberal theologians? Well, many of them are teaching in certain Bible colleges. Others are standing behind pulpits of churches. Some of them wear clerical collars. Some of them wear a suit and tie. But their theology is liberal. And they'll basically say, don't believe the miraculous. There's an interesting story of a man who sat under the preaching of a liberal theologian for a number of years. And every time that his liberal theological pastor told him, well, the Bible says this, but don't you believe it is not true. He would go home and with a pair of scissors, he would cut it out of the Bible. Well, one day he knocked on his pastor's door and said, can I come in? Sure, said the pastor. And the man produced this tattered, fragmented Bible. And he put it on the desk and the pastor said, what's this? The man said, that's your Bible. He said, that's not my Bible. He said, oh yes, it is. And he opened it and showed him there weren't many pages left. And what was there was cut and tattered and everything. I've sat under your preaching for five years. Every time you said something wasn't true, I cut it out of the Bible. That's your Bible. That pretty accurately describes liberal theology. So you have to be aware of this. So how is it that these liberal theologians, liberal preachers, deny the resurrections? Well, that's where we come to the fables. And I want to give you three quick fables. Number one is the wrong tomb theory. Jesus, they say, never rose from the, the, the dead. He, he died. He's still in the tomb. The women, they went to the wrong tomb and they found it empty and they said, he must have rose from the dead. And so this is the wrong tomb theory. They just went to a different tomb. They made a mistake. They went to the wrong tomb. They found it empty. They thought Jesus rose from the dead. But take your Bible and we're coming back to Matthew. So turn to the right to the Gospel of Luke. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 23. Luke 23 and verse number 55. Luke 23, 55. It says the women took careful note of where Jesus was buried. Verse 55, and the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. The women weren't stupid. They were intelligent women. They knew exactly where the tomb was. And by the way, there weren't that many tombs in that area. And so, I I want you to see that the Bible answers these crazy accusations that the women went to the wrong... They didn't go to the wrong tomb. They knew exactly where to go. Go back to Matthew, only this time go to chapter 28. 
chapter 28. And look at verse 9 and 10. It says, And as they, that's the women, went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid, go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Did the women just make a mistake again? First they made a mistake where the tomb was. Oh, it's empty. They turn and all of a sudden they all make a mistake and they imagine they see Jesus. And so they throw themselves imaginatively, you figure it out, at his imaginative feet. Uh, No, that doesn't make any sense at all. Again, these people who who say that the women made a mistake, I I think are stupid. I think this is a very clumsy accusation to make. What about the testimony of the angel? If you look in chapter 28, verse 5, it says, And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Did they just imagine that? These women who supposedly went to the wrong tomb found it empty. Did they imagine seeing Jesus? Did they imagine seeing an angel? And what about John and Peter? We won't go there, but in the Gospel of John chapter 20, verses 4 to 7, when the women get to the disciples and they tell them, Peter and John hightail it over to the tomb, they knew which tomb to go to, Peter and John, and they went in and they saw it was empty too. Did Peter and John also make a mistake and go to the wrong tomb? It doesn't make any sense at all. The wrong tomb theory is just too ridiculous to believe. Well, the liberals come and say, well, if you don't like that one, how do you like this one? The swoon theory. The swoon theory. The liberals say Jesus actually did die on, uh, did, I'm sorry, they, he did not die on the cross. This is a liberal accusation. Jesus, they just thought he died. He did not really die. He only swooned. In other words, he fainted. Sort of went coma, into a coma or something like that. And the people all thought that he died. But when they put him into the, the cold tomb, the cool air revived him and he, he woke up. And then he just came forward. That's the swoon theory. And that's a hunk of baloney, really. Um, what about the trauma and the scourging that he went through? He almost died under the hand of the, the tormentor there as they beat him with a cat of nine tails and he lost so much blood. They almost killed him. What about the spear they they drove into his side and the tremendous loss of blood? What about that? You're talking about a swoon theory where he fell asleep and woke up in the tomb and then just got up and came out and said, Hi, everyone. Well, the swoon people, they don't take into account also the fact that according to John chapter 19, his body was wrapped up in burial clothes How could a barely alive Jesus get out of all of that? And then even if he could get up and get out of the the clothes, how did he get the tomb open? There was this massive boulder that it took a couple of men to roll in front. He was beaten within an inch of his life. He was practically dead. And if he did swoon and and come out of it, there's no way he could have pushed the boulder aside And even if he could have. Waiting for him outside was a team of armed guards. 
There's no way the, the swoon theory can, can hold up to scrutiny. And medical people who work with trauma and with death will all testify that this swoon theory is ridiculous. All right, says the liberal, if you don't like my, my uh, swoon theory, if you don't like my wrong tomb theory, how about the fraud theory? The fraud theory. The liberals say that Jesus did certainly die on the cross, but the apostles, they just simply told a lie. They knew he was dead, but they wanted to perpetrate, you know, the belief. And so the apostles just simply lied and started telling everyone that Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, the resurrection is just a lie. These are the arguments of the liberal theologian. Let's look at it. Jesus' teachings were all about truth for his three and a half year ministry. Truth, truth, truth. It makes no sense that his apostles would all of a sudden start telling lies now. The Apostle Paul later said, And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, meaning empty, worthless. And your faith is also vain, empty, worthless. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. Now he's referring to himself and the other apostles, because we have testified that God, uh, of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if, if so be that the dead rise not. So Paul came right out and said it. Are we liars? Have we told everyone lies? Well, if Christ is not risen, then yeah, we've told everyone lies. The liberal theologians, many of them, say that the resurrection is just a lie. Now, what possible reason would the apostles have for telling these lies since all of them were tortured to death for it? Why would they die for a lie? Why would they undergo the afflictions and torture that they, they went through all their lives because they were apostles preaching the glorious message of a resurrected Christ? Why would they do it if they knew it was all a lie? And remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the ones really behind trying to crush Jesus and crush Christianity. And if the apostles simply told lies about Jesus' resurrection, and if Jesus were still dead, all the Pharisees and Sadducees would have to do is go to the tomb, bring out the body, and say, here he is, folks. There's your Jesus, dead as a doornail. And it all would have stopped. They would have won. They would have crushed the Christian faith. Right then and there. If they could have produced the body. But there was no body to produce. And they knew it. The fraud theory would not hold up in a court of law. Because the fraud theory itself is a lie. The Pharisees and Sadducees told the guards afterwards. Well here we'll give you some money. You tell everyone that while we were asleep. The disciples came and stole away the body. Which I mentioned on Friday. Would not hold up in a court of law. Because if they were asleep they'd have no idea. What happened to the body? Let alone that it was the apostles who came and took it. Because they were asleep. Lies, lies, and more lies. There are other theories, including the apostles were on drugs and hallucinated the whole thing. But none of these, none of these crazy fables will hold up. Point number two. I've given you point number one, the fables of the resurrection. Point number two, the facts. The facts of the resurrection. 
Historical truth is proven by facts. Facts that include, number one, eyewitness testimony by persons of reputable character. Number two, previous history in order to establish a precedent. Number three, other substantiating proof such as medical evidence or scientific evidence. And this is how historical truth is proven by facts. What are the facts? The first fact is that the resurrection was predicted. Believe it or not, it was predicted. One thousand years before Christ's death. In Psalm 16 verse 10, the prophecy is, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Now that in itself is a fascinating study. Jesus was raised from the dead before corruption set in on the body. Very interesting. Then Jesus himself predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. Now you're in Matthew. Turn back to chapter 16 with me, please. Matthew chapter 16. Folks watching at home, we respectfully ask that you turn there with us. Don't let us do all the work. Matthew 16 and verse 21. Now this is the verse that we read. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Here we have the Lord Jesus predicting his own resurrection. And Jesus also predicted his resurrection four times in the last week of his life. Look at chapter 17 and verse number 9. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Look at verse 22 of the same chapter. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. Now turn the page to chapter 20, and look please at verse number 17. Chapter 20, verse 17. And Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge. That's that beating with a whip. The whip had a whole bunch of long pieces of leather cord with pieces of bone and metal tied to the end. It was a horrible thing. They'd flay the skin or the flesh right off your body with this thing. That was scourging. So they were going to mock him and scourge him and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. And look at chapter 26. Chapter 26 and verse 32 course the last supper and then after that the garden of gethsemane uh, and verse 32 26 and 32 but after i am risen again there's the resurrection 
I will go before you into Galilee. The apostles all heard Jesus give the prediction. Numerous times they may not have fully understood what he was talking about, but Jesus predicted it. And so the first fact is that the resurrection was predicted. Number two, the second fact is the resurrection was performed. Now for this, go to chapter 28. Chapter 28. Follow with me as I read the first four verses talk about the tomb being opened. Remember, the resurrection was performed. Here's how it happened. In the day, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, that Sunday, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning. The word countenance means that his, uh, his face shone, his, the, the glory emanated from him. Uh, and his raiment, that's his clothing, was white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers, those are the armed guards we were talking about. The keepers did shake and became as dead men. They swooned. There's, there's the only swoon theory right there. Is the, the cutthroat guards, they all uh, passed out. Okay, so the tomb was opened. Then the message was given. Look at verse 5. The angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. We have the tomb open. We have the message given. We have the appearance made. Look at verse number 9. And as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them. Here he is, the resurrected Christ, saying, All hail! And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. There's the appearance that was made. And then finally, that business with the soldiers. Look at verse 11. And now, when they were going, behold, some of the watch, those are the keepers, the, the guards, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come into the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money. And did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now remember, these records, they are eyewitness testimonies by persons of reputable character. People like Judas never got to say anything or give an eyewitness account. The eyewitnesses were honorable people. Remember also that Jesus had set a precedent. Remember we said one of the other evidences is precedent in order to establish historical fact. Jesus set a precedent by performing miracles, multiple miracles for the three years of his ministry before his resurrection. He opened the ears of the deaf. He opened the eyes of the blind. He cured all manner of sickness and disease. And he himself even raised the dead on several occasions. There was Lazarus, 
in the tomb, dead four days, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth. There was Jairus' daughter who was dead. He came in, raised her to life. There was a poor widow whose only son had died and he was on the, the, uh, the burial bier there. They were carrying him out. And Jesus touched it and the guy sat upright. Documented proof. Therefore, the account of the resurrection, I'm telling you, is both credible because it's by reputable people and it's believable because there is historic precedent set by Jesus himself. We have the fables of the resurrection. We have the facts of the resurrection. But what does all this mean in our lives? That brings us to the fruit of the resurrection. And for this, I need you to turn to the right to the book of 1 Corinthians. After, Mark, after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you've got Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. If at the top of the page it says 2 Corinthians, you've gone a couple pages too far. So 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The fruit of the resurrection. So if Jesus really did die, and he really did rise from the dead, so what? How does that affect us today? Well, number one, first, it gives us a message for all people everywhere. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul gives us an explanation of the gospel. What is the gospel? We know the word gospel means good news. That's technically what it means, but good news about what? He says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Some people will hear the gospel and forget it, you know, the next day. Other people will hear the gospel, take it into their heart, and for the rest of their life, they'll believe it. They'll believe the truth of it. That's what he's saying. People who are born again have evidence of new life in Christ. And one of those evidences is that they never did stop believing in the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. They always kept believing. Even if their lives were a little wonky at times, they always knew who Jesus was. They always knew he, he died and rose again. They always knew that he loved them and gave himself for them. They always knew that. And people who are born again, they never forget that. People who forget it, they probably weren't born again in the first place. Verse number three, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. The Old Testament prophesied it. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And so, here we have the preaching. We also have the proof behind that preaching. Well, how do we know Jesus rose? Look at verse 5. And he was seen of Cephas. That's another name for the apostle Peter. Cephas. Then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once. 
of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. Jesus made himself known and appeared not just to Peter and the other apostles, but at one point to 500 people that were gathered there. We don't have time to show you where that happened, but it's right in the Gospels, right at the end, before Jesus went back to heaven. There was gathered unto him all of these believers. Verse 7, After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles. He calls himself here. So we have proof. We have eyewitness account by reputable men and women who saw it. Well, first, we have this message. But secondly, this message gives us hope beyond the grave. How many here have ever been to a funeral? Raise your hand if you've ever been to a funeral. All right. Not everyone could raise their hand. Maybe one day you'll be at a funeral. Hopefully it won't be your own. Maybe you'll be at someone's funeral. You'll be there to try and comfort the living. I've been to lots of funerals. Can you believe that? Am I telling you the truth? What do you think? I've been in the ministry 40 years, 42 years, pardon me, 42 years. Do you believe me if I tell you I've been to a lot of funerals? Do you believe that? You have no reason to doubt it even though I've never been to your funeral, you still have no reason to doubt what I'm saying. I've conducted a lot of marriages too. Do you believe that? Yeah, that's all part and parcel of being in the ministry. But I've been to a lot of different kind of funerals. And I've been to funerals where people have known Jesus as their Savior and they died and they're in heaven and the family knew they're in heaven. And even though there was a sense of loss, ooh, going to miss them. There was a sense of joy. They're safe in the arms of Jesus. Because if you know where something is, it's not lost, right? But I've also been to funerals where people didn't know the Lord as their Savior. I've been to these funerals and I'm telling you, there is a difference like day and night between the, the mood in those funerals the conversations in those funerals, the things that are said from the little podium and at the graveside, there's a difference like night and day. And I've seen it and I've heard it. I'm happy to say, in Christ we have hope beyond the grave. My own personal testimony, when I was a teenager, I had a terrible fear of death. I knew nothing of death. I would watch some picture on World War II or World War I and I'd see the guys rat-tat-tat get shot up and inside me I'd say, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. What's going to happen to me? As an 18-year-old, when I repented of my sin and I received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, one of the very first things I noticed because I wasn't afraid to die anymore. The fear was gone. The devil had no hold on me in that area of my life. It's because in Christ we have hope beyond the grave. And when you see people at funerals that are just torn, torn and twisted and just so broken, grieving, do they know Christ as Savior? Do they have any kind of hope beyond the grave? Do they have hope that they're going to see their loved one again? 
It sure doesn't look like it, does it? This is where the rubber meets the road. This is the fruit of the resurrection. There's something there for you and me. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Praise the Lord, we serve a risen Savior. You see, that's why we say, He is risen! He is risen indeed. If He weren't alive, if He weren't risen, oh boy, we'd be lost in our sins. We'd be fooling ourselves. But there is so much more proof, including the proof of a changed life. And yet, with all of this, there are still countless people who totally reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you a a true story about one of them. Her name was Lady Grimston. She was born in 1654. She died in 1713 at 59 years of age. She lived in a mansion in England in a place called Hertfordshire County. In 1713, Lady Anne Grimston lay dying in her deathbed. She had been a proud and obstinate woman. She'd enjoyed her wealth and land and society of her friends. And during her long life, she paid very little attention to God and to important things of eternity. And soon she was to pass away. And she died basically the way she lived, without faith, without God. She believed that there was nothing else in the world in, in life except riches and her grand house and her friends and her fine dinners and her elegant clothing and all the things she enjoyed. And she believed that one day when she passed away, there would be nothing waiting for her. She said there was no eternal life. There's no eternal soul. There's no heaven. There's no hell. Some of her friends actually tried to point out to her how terrible and impossible this was and how certainly she will live on after death. But she would have none of it. Lady Grimston was proud and unbelieving and she said to her friends, I shall not continue to live It is as unlikely that I shall continue to live as a tree will grow out of my body. And she went as far as to make a challenge to heaven, saying, if indeed there is life hereafter, trees will render asunder my tomb. And so God took her up on that challenge. Lady Anne Grimstone died and was buried in a strong tomb made of marble. Buried and forgotten, I might add, but not quite. For one day, many years after, the marble slab over her grave was found to have moved from its position. The builders came and repositioned it and fixed it firmly back in place, thinking it was quite secure. But a tree with four roots grows from the site of Lady Grimston's tomb. So again, the heavy marble slab tilted slightly on one side. And then in the middle, there was a crack with a tiny bunch of leaves beginning to burst through. The crack was closed with cement and the slab put back, but again, the slab was lifted up and cracked open wider than ever. And a thin trunk of a tree appeared. 
They repaired the crumbling tomb and built tall iron railings around it to hold the masonry together. But the young tree made its way, breaking through the masonry and destroying the walls of the tomb and tearing the heavy iron railings out of the ground. And today, and you can look on the internet and check this out, Lady Anne Grimston's tomb, growing right from the heart of Lady Anne Grimston's grave in St. Peter's Churchyard in Hertfordshire County, is a large tree with four trees growing from its root. The trunk of the tree has grown fast through the iron railings and cannot be moved. The marble masonry of the tomb has shattered to pieces and today Lady Anne Grimston's grave is a heap of broken stone and twisted iron bars. For over 300 years, the trunks have forced their way through the tomb and raised their branches in silent, powerful triumph to God. He lives. Come with me to the foot of the cross where the Son of Man redeemed our loss. A man of no import, wealth, or fame, his body nailed to a wooden frame. Come with me to the foot of the cross where even his garments were sold and tossed. His cry of thirst in earshot of all was met with the taste of gall. Come with me to the foot of the cross The guards shout, this was the Son of God, transforming power through the shedding blood. Their hearts changed as in a raging flood. Come with me to the mountain tomb, where kept inside this earthly womb, the temple of the living God, whose feet upon the earth once trod. Come with me to the mountain tomb, the nightly watch of men attuned, the shock of boulder, rock, and stone cast aside, answers unknown. Come with me to the empty tomb, where the Son of Man was thought to loom. All that was left were garments stained, the precious blood upon them remained. Come with me to the empty tomb, He is risen as a flower in bloom. The memory of his promise with that temple would be raised. Filled their hearts with joy. To God be all the praise. He is risen. Sounds like music when you say it. If you're here today or watching online and you've not yet received this risen Savior into your heart. You've not yet turned from sin And ask Jesus to forgive your sin and to take control of your life. You see, that's what it means when He's Lord. Lord Jesus, He's the boss. He's in control. If you've never done that, you need to do that. As you know, I did that actually April the 6th, 1975. 48 years ago this past week, I trusted Christ. I've never been sorry for it. And blessing after blessing. He's made my life oh so sweet. And he can forgive sin. And he can lift the burden of guilt. And he can remove the fear of death. And he can give the sweet joy of heaven. And a whole lot more. And he's waiting at the heart's door. May I come in. Would you pray with me now please? Close your eyes and bow your head. Thank you for watching the message today. 
We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.